Good morning, and good morning again to those in Renew. This morning, we are beginning a journey through one of the most fascinating and dramatic books in the entire Bible, the book of Joshua. It's a book that helps us uh, process the question that, that every one of us has, sometimes almost every day. What in the world is God doing in my life, with my life? Or to put it in the language of Paul's letter to the book of Philippians that we walked through last fall, how do I work with the God who's at work with me and at work in me? In chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I am confident that the one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ. It's never completed until that day. I'm sure some people who first read that letter from Paul would have said, well, I'm glad you're confident because we're sure not. I'm sure some would have said, how can you say that? You're not here to see what's really happening, how bad it really is. Forgetting that it was actually worse for Paul in prison. In chapter 2 of Philippians, Paul comes back to that same thing. All you have to do is to keep working out your salvation not working to fulfill your dreams, working out what God has brought you into in Jesus with fear and trembling, but with confidence that as you do that, God is at work in you to will and act according to his good purpose, to fulfill his purpose. Now, in light of that, turn to the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. It's the sixth book in the Old Testament, Joshua chapter 1. The book of Joshua has long been recognized as a book that shows us some very clear patterns as to how God works in us and with us, what it is that we know God is doing, and how we can cooperate with that. There's some, there's some very dramatic history. There's some awesome God moments, including some downright controversial elements, like, really? Would God really do that? Three Sundays from today, we're going to dive right in and process one of the most controversial factors in the book of Joshua in today's world, holy war. How can I believe in a God who tells people to wipe other people out? We'll talk about that. So what is it that we see in Joshua for us? I, I like the word patterns. There's no steps and formulas. Patterns. Not specific prescriptions like God did this for Joshua, so that's what God is going to do for me. God worked with Joshua this way, so that's exactly the way he's working with me now. It's patterns. Got it? We have to be very careful as we read any part of the Bible, but especially the narrative parts, the historical parts, how much we say, this is how God wants to work with me because this is how God did it then. A lot of it is descriptive, describing how God works, and it takes time and sensitivity to figure out how much of that is prescriptive for us. And if we don't do that, we get into that frustrating spin cycle in our mind because we took something as a promise or a prescription and it's not happening. And we start blaming God. Or if we can't blame God, 
we blame other people, our environment, or we start blaming ourselves. So remember that word patterns as we go through the book of Joshua, starting at verse 1. Are you ready? Joshua chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, just the first five verses. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant is dead. Can't get any more clear than that. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot. As I promised Moses, your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. So already in this introduction, we are introduced to the three main players in this drama. Two of the main ones being God and Joshua. If you're a sports, phrase, or a sports fan, there's a, there's a phrase you've heard umpteen times. One of those cliches that is just, well, this one's actually good. It, it's often in an interview after the game with a star player of the team explaining how they won even though one or two of their top players had been sidelined with an injury. Or, or it's an interview with the bench guy who came in and became the hero of the game. And the question goes something like this, how was it that you guys could win today even though you lost one or two of your go-to guys? How was it that you, bench guy, were able to take the game on your back when you've been on the bench most of the year? What's the answer? Every single time? Well, we just believe in next man up. The coach has convinced us we all need to be ready at all times to step in if someone goes down. I don't know about you, but I wonder how much they really believe that. How many of the other guys still on the bench really believe that, right? But here we have it in God's game. Moses goes down, and God says, Joshua, next man up. That would be you. And Joshua is... He is scared to death. We know that because of the last line where it says, be strong and courageous. The main reason Joshua is afraid is because Joshua knows well the other character, the other player in this story. All these people. Joshua's not afraid of the land. He's not afraid of the people in the land. Joshua knows the people he will be working with. But God, God reminds him why he is more ready than he realizes why he is the next man up. Today, from this introductory paragraph and, and looking at the, the backstory that leads to this paragraph, we're going to see two things, two foundational next man up perspectives that are absolutely critical to learning to work with the God who's at work with us. The first thing we see is that to work with the God who's at work with me, I need to realize 
and call myself to realize every day that it is always, it is always less about God's plan for me because it's all about God's plan, period, and about me for God's plan. That's a huge hurdle for us, especially in this very individualistic world in which we live, a social media world in which everyone has equal ability to tell the entire world about me and to see the world through my lens, who I am, what I got to do. We, all, we, we, we have more ways than ever to feed our story into the world and to show that my story is the one that matters most to me. Look again at those introductory verses we read, beginning in, in verse 2. Get ready to cross the Jordan into the land I am about to give them, the Israelites. Joshua, this is not about you. It's about these people. I will give you every place where I set your foot as I promised Moses, as I was with Moses, I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land that I swore to their ancestors to give them. What do you see here? Basically, this book called Joshua is not about God's plan for Joshua. It's about God's plan, period. Joshua, let me remind you about my plan, a plan that has been in my mind since before the foundation of the world, a plan that I started to implement in real time, in the real world, about 750 years ago, Joshua. 750 years before this date, God called a man by the name of Abraham, to do what? To leave his land and his people. To become the father of a new people that would be God's people to whom he would give a land that he would show Abraham. 750 years. Where were your ancestors 750 years ago? That's a long time. When we focus so much on ourselves and God's plan for me, we are so, we are so short-sighted. Abraham saw the land from a mountaintop. He lived as a nomad in the land that would ultimately be his people's land. No, not his people's land. God's people's land. Well, not really God's people's land. God's land. And it was over 400 years probably about 430 years from this day, way back, that God had led this still nomadic people into slavery in Egypt. Not because he was abandoning his plan, but, well, we'll see in a couple of weeks one of the reasons why. And it was 40 years ago that God, through the leadership of Moses, had led these people out of Egypt to Mount Sinai to meet him and get organized to go into this land, but because they were not yet at the point of trusting God, they have to endure 40 years of wandering around in the desert. 
You see, God is way less in a hurry with his plan than we are. Speaking of being in a hurry, do you know how old Joshua is when he gets his next man up call? Joshua chapter 1. Joshua is somewhere between 68 and 78 years old. Would you, be, would you still be ready at 70 years old for a next man up call? Would you? Now this encounter with God is not out of the blue. It's not new news for Joshua. Right before the book of Joshua is the book of Deuteronomy, the last of the the first five books, the, the Pentateuch, the last of the books of Moses, where we have the closing chapter of Moses' leadership of the people. And if you turn just a few pages back to chapter 31, you'll see Moses passing on the torch, torch to Joshua. And God meets with Joshua at that time and says almost the same thing he tells him now. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 23. The Lord gave this command to Joshua, son of Nun. Be strong and courageous, for you will bring the Israelites into the land I promised them on oath, and I myself will be with you. And then, you got to see this. After God says this to Joshua, Moses talks to the people in Joshua's presence. Chapter 31, verse 24, after Moses finished writing in a book the words of this law from beginning to end, he gave this command to the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Um, Take this book of the law, place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. There it will remain as a witness against you, not for you, but against you. In other words, well, we'll see, for Moses says to these people after Joshua has heard God talking to him, for I know how rebellious and stiff-necked you are if you have been rebellious against the Lord while I am still alive and with you, how much more will you rebel after I die? Are you kidding me? What do you think Joshua is hearing when Moses hears Moses say that last line? If you've been rebellious against God while I'm alive, And with you, how much more are you going to rebel after I die? As Joshua hears that, it's like, whoa, I know how they rebelled against Moses, and he's saying it's going to be worse for me? My job is to have an undoable job? I'm going into this with failure guaranteed. Like, what's with that? Joshua? It's not about God's plan for you. It's about God's plan. And you for God's plan. Joshua, this is not about you. And what God doesn't tell Joshua, and what Joshua never gets to know, is that Joshua, my plan going forward is not just about this land for this generation. This is a step in a much bigger plan. Out of this people, out of this land will come one who will, in real time, as the true leader, complete the plan. I am taking one step forward with you. You see, it's fascinating to me that this book that documents how God fulfills a promise to Abraham 750 years earlier about the land which was to be the land of God's people for his plan, 
it, it, it's fascinating that this book is called Joshua. If it's not really about Joshua. Why is that? Why is this book called Joshua? If it's not about Joshua. Th think, think about that a little more. The book of Genesis is not called Abraham. Even though the majority of the book documents the call and journey of the man these people call the father of their nation, wouldn't you think Abraham would have a book named after him? The book of Exodus, it's not called Moses. Even though Moses is the one God used to lead the people out of slavery into the land of promise, Moses is, is, is from beginning to end of the book of Exodus. So why is this book called Joshua. Because Joshua is more significant than Moses? No, as a matter of fact, at the conclusion of the book of Deuteronomy, the very last paragraph, one page back, which was added by an editor later because that's what history surfaced, it says, since then no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses. And that includes Joshua. Moses and Abraham were both considered greater than Joshua, so why does Joshua get a book named after him? Well, I think the book of Hebrews in the New Testament gives us the answer to that. The plan God is implementing through Joshua, the book of Hebrews helps Jewish people see something that they needed to see. That this land was all about sending another person whose name was Joshua. You see, Joshua is the Hebrew word for the Greek name, Jesus. Hebrews is a book that talks about how Jesus, the real Joshua, is the one who was brought into history for all people, the fulfillment of everything the story of God in the Old Testament points to. The one thing that the land was given to God's people for was that they could be settled, that they could be secure, that they could be stable, not in the land, but in the God who gave them this land, it, it, it was called rest. We talked about that last week. Jesus came along and he said, I will give you rest. And what Jesus is referring to is what they were supposed to have known in the land. Jesus is the new Joshua. In chapter 4 of Hebrews, the author talks about how Jesus is God's fulfillment of that entire promise of rest that they were supposed to experience in the land. It wasn't about a land. It was about a people who lived from this land to point to the one who gave it to them and the one who was to come, Joshua. Hebrews chapter 4, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken about another day. Let us, he says, then make every effort to enter that rest. You see, what Hebrews is saying is that in one sense, we are still on pilgrimage today. We won't ever fully conquer the territory God is trying to reclaim, which is our hearts. We are still on pilgrimage following the real Joshua who came. Joshua never gets to know how significant he would be in God's plan, neither did whoever named the book. God moved somebody to name this book after him to be a reminder to those who are open to seeing it when Jesus came along that he is what God had been working towards all along. By the way, did, did you know Joshua was not the name that he was born with? Did you know that? His original name was Hosea. 
which simply means salvation. But 40 years before Joshua 1, when Joshua originally led the 12 spies to search through the land, even though 10 of them came back and said, we can't do it, and only Joshua and Caleb said, no, but God can do it, and our job is simply to follow God and watch him work. We can't, but he can. And God said, because of the lack of faith of the majority, because you're making it about you, you're going to wander around for 40 years and only two people of your generation will enter that land, Caleb and Hosea. And we read in Numbers chapter 13, talks about that story that at that time, Moses changed his, uh, Hosea's name to Jehoshua, which is God is salvation. And that is who Jesus wants to be for you. And that is what Joshua was supposed to be reminding the people of every time they said his name. No, it's not about Joshua. It's about God is salvation. So right from the start of the book, the book of Joshua, the, the book is about and people being called to enter into God's rest, not relaxation kind of rest, but a security and stability based on working with the God who's at work with us. And right away, we see two things. It's it's all about figuring out the Jesus piece. Jesus is God's salvation, the ultimate rescuer, and the only true leader. You won't figure out what God is doing with you until you come to terms with Jesus. Jesus as the ultimate lover who died for you to claim you as his own, and the leader whose desire is to lead you into a life of living in and living from God's rest and for his plan. And it's from that perspective that the why questions we, we always ask are, 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 not, are never really fully resolved, but, but they become less important. That was the perspective of of Joseph, who was the one who got taken by God down into Egypt because his brothers sold him into slavery, and he ends up in a prison for many years. And later on, when his brothers come back, they don't even recognize him, and he is the leader, the second in command in Egypt. And when his brothers find out who it is, they... Do whatever it is you do when you're ultimately scared. And Joseph says to them, you meant it for evil. He says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Think of that. Am I in the place of God? I I can't judge you. God did this. You intended it to harm me. But God intended it for good. For whose good? My good? It's not what Joseph is saying. Joseph does not have that perspective. Look what you've done to me. Look where you took me. You intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives for the good of other people, for the preserving of God's plan. And even Joseph didn't realize that the the great good that God was really accomplishing in preserving his people to accomplish his plan after about 400 more years. So can you see the ways, some ways even now, in which you have been focusing too much on 
you and what God's plan for you is. Not giving yourself to the journey, the unpredictable but secure journey of finding ways to just, to just help fulfill God's plan in some little way. We have four words that we're using these days at Ellerslie to summarize what we believe it means for us to do that in, in our day here in southwest Edmonton and beyond. Number one, influence. We want to become people who are God-influenced people, claimed by God, following Jesus. And next week, Dave will share with us the central piece to becoming a people who are influenced by God. Influenced by God, and then influencing our networks and neighborhoods for Jesus. Loving, serving, making it not about ourselves, but giving ourselves to adding value to our neighborhoods. Winning the right and looking for opportunities to, to invite them to check Jesus out. And then not just inviting them, but being a people that includes the people around us in the circle and giving ourselves to invest in that with our time, talents, and treasure. That's, that's all it is. That's our journey together. Tonight, we're going we're gonna to hear some stories at our congregation meetings. We're going to hear some stories about people who have, who have experienced Ellerslie as an including, inviting, influencing body in their lives. You want to come and hear those stories. So to work with the God who's working with me begins always and continually by realizing that it is not about God's plan for me. It's about me for God's plan. And when I look at that life, at life that way, one of the things that will happen is that I will begin to accept and live in the second next man up perspective which is that no matter what God is doing, God is always, always preparing me for what's next. For 70 years, God has been preparing Joshua for this day. Now, let's, uh, let's just look for a, from a simple word picture. Every one of us has three things that are part of our life. Three things we all have in common. Every one of us has a past. Every one of us has the present, and every one of us has a future. Maybe that future is only one day, but we all have a future. But most of us tend to focus and live in one of those, not all of them, whether we realize it or not. And focusing most on just one of those is a symptom that we are making it all about me and not about God's plan. Some of us live in the past. We're always trying to bring back the past. Why can't we do it like we always did? Why can't I experience this because that's what, why can't I experience this in my family because that's what I experienced in my family growing up, right? Why? Because we want it to be comfortable for us. It's not about God's plan, it's about me. Some of us totally think about the future. We're wishing our life away. We are ignoring or perhaps using people around us because all we're doing is looking to our dream, our goals, our preferred future. And it's all about using other people to get where I want to go. Some of us say, forget about the past, forget about the future. I just want to live in the moment. Now, a lot of us could live a little more in the moment. I know that. But here's the deal. 
We can only live life well in the present when we come to terms with the past. What God has allowed us to experience, how we have failed and are trying to deny or forget or cover it up or make up for it, how God wants to use our past, even our failures, to use us and shape us for his purposes. So coming to terms with the past brings us forgiveness, it brings us insight, and it helps us to see a trajectory. Oh, it's important to not always wish our life away and, and get to where we think God's taking us. It's also important to take every opportunity that is before us now to do what we can for God now. And as we do that, the things that we do now, even though it may not be what we want to do, are preparing us for the next man up step. The most significant way we can prepare for the future is to do life well now. Not what I wish I could do, not what I think I should be asked to do, but what becomes available for me to do today. In God's plan, until I die, every single step in some way is preparation for what's next. So in light of that, let's go back and see some of the ways God has prepared Joshua for this very day. Joshua was born and raised in Egypt. He was. He remembered how bad it was. As a child, he grew up with dad perhaps never even getting home at night and totally exhausted the whole time, an abused and broken man. And Joshua started his life as a young adult in the same way. Which means that as a young adult, Joshua also witnessed the exodus. He was part of it. He watched possibly with some what's-the-use cynicism as his parents sacrificed a lamb and put the blood on the doorposts. Maybe out of duty he helped, but he was old enough not to be naive. God hasn't showed up in 400 years. Why would this change anything? But he saw the angel of death do to those who did not have the blood on their doorposts. And he felt the urgency as he escaped and and with naive enthusiasm, Joshua would have joined in. Something is happening. God is on the move. And then his cynicism might well have returned as the armies of Egypt had them cornered at the Red Sea. And then to march through the sea as God parted the waters. Now that got his attention. So do you think it's an accident that God preserved someone from that original group who left Egypt to lead them into the promised land? The first thing they had to do was cross the Jordan River at high tide as a people. And Joshua could have said to them, you guys, you weren't there, but this is nothing compared to what God did way back when, right? After several days in the desert after the Red Sea, Joshua is starting to trust God and he is starting to respect Moses. And he's wanting to do what he can to help Moses instead of grumble against Moses like most of the people were doing. That must have been what happened because it was Joshua whose shoulder Moses taps to pick some men and lead in the first battle they face coming out of Egypt, the Amalekite people. 
In Exodus chapter 17, we have that story, that great story of Moses standing on the hilltop for Joshua to see and all of the people to see with the staff of God in his hands and Joshua leading them into a battle when he's never fought a war before. But Moses saw in him something. Can can you imagine how powerful that was for Joshua? He had never fought a war, let alone led a war. And Joshua knows that it is not his military genius. It is the staff of God. God is doing this. It's not him. Can you see already 40 years ago before this day, Joshua is being groomed to be the next leader. And although Joshua doesn't realize it yet, I'm sure Moses sees in Joshua some skills that he doesn't have. Skills that will be needed when the time comes to enter the land of promise. Moses knows that although he's God's leader for today, he's not the army general. Different skill set. God is getting Joshua and the people ready. The next time we hear about Joshua, Exodus chapter 24, is, is the first time that he is called Moses' aid, which we saw in Joshua chapter 1. He goes up with Moses partway up the mountain as God gives Moses the constitution and the law. Which as we look back from what we see down the road, makes us wonder, is God perhaps protecting Joshua from the debacle of the golden calf that's happening down below? Where the people have this orgy of worship of foreign gods rebelling against Moses and God? Now there's a way to look at some of our life, isn't it? Some of us feel we haven't had all those wild experiences that make dramatic God stories. But isn't it powerful to look back and see? I can see in my way some of the ways that God protected me in times when I could have gone a different direction. But on that mountain, Joshua also gets a glimpse and a taste of what it means to know and walk with God. He develops a longing for the presence of God as we talked about that last day. We know that because as the scene in the mountain wraps up, We read that when Moses went to the special tent of meeting that he had built to meet with God, the people stood and watched him. But Joshua, it says, well, here's what it says. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, would not leave the tent. Joshua's learning that it's not about his gifting, It's about knowing and loving God. But back up a couple of chapters, back to chapter 32, where he and Moses are coming down from the mountain. God has prepared Moses for what he'll face at the bottom, this orgy of rebellion. But Moses possibly wants to protect Joshua, not taint him, just in case it's not as bad as as he thinks it is. And as they're coming down from the mountain, it says, when Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, Sounds like there's a war in the camp. Moses said, hmm, it's not the sound of victory. It's not the sound of defeat. So it can't be war. I hear singing. Now think about that. Can you see, see something here about why, although Joshua's already won a battle, 
Joshua has already got this base camp spending time with God thing down pat. Why he still may need some more development? I'm sure you've heard the phrase, when the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? At this point, the primary experience of leading God's people Joshua has had is, is war, battle. And so when something's going on, well, it's got to be a war, if, 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 right? Joshua's a godly man, Joshua's a gifted man, but Joshua still has some development to do in terms of seeing the big picture. I can remember an experience in my life, I'd, I'd, I'd be willing to bet the guy I was talking to you didn't remember it, I, but it was, it was shaping for me in terms of this big picture thing. Um, I was tree planting in northern BC as a 24-year-old with a group of college buddies, every several of whom were heading toward Christian leadership and Christian ministry experiences. And I was the only one who had actually had some ministry experience as a youth pastor already. And, and one, of these, one day, one of these guys, who, who would eventually become a pastor, said to me, so what do you think is the most significant threat to the church in Canada? Well, I was ready. Because the church in which I had worked in had been challenged by people who pushed what was deemed by the leaders to be, to be a bit of a divisive teaching. And they were forming this camp. And other churches were around there were experiencing some of the same thing. And I was convinced that this was the biggest threat to the church in Canada. <laughs> well, I still believe it's a one-sided perspective that can be divisive. But I needed some more experience to put it into a bigger picture perspective. And, and that is such a big lesson for any leadership role, especially leading God's people. It's, it, it's why, for instance, as we choose people to lead on a board, we're not looking for representatives of certain demographics, a certain perspective. We need people of wisdom who can see the big picture in light of God's plans. Joshua is gifted and he's godly, but he's not yet ready for main stage. There's one more experience we've mentioned already. We'll just mention it briefly, that, that prepared Joshua for this day. Joshua has already been across the river in the land, spying out the entire land. Forty years ago, he and Caleb were the only ones who said, we can do it. And yet, Joshua has this foundation on which to enter the land. He is the only one who knows what's there. And he can pull people into it. Isn't it amazing as you look back to see how Joshua at 70-ish years old is exactly the man, the only man to be the next man up? Folks, you never know until your dying day how God might want to use you in some little way to move his plan forward. Are you ready? As I look again at how God prepared Joshua for his next man up moment, I, I was reminded of something that we looked at several years ago. It comes from the work of a man who had his own significant struggles understanding what God was doing in him and with him in a very difficult circumstance in his life. The man's name was, was Bobby Clinton, J. Robert Clinton. He loved God with all his heart. He wanted to follow God with all his being. He was trained as an engineer with a graduate degree in electrical engineering, and he worked as an officer in the Marine Corps and then as an engineer with uh, the Bell Corporation and then also on the pastoral staff of a church. And then he ended up working as a missionary and then a mission leader for, a, for an overseas mission organization. And then the wheels fell off. For the first time in his life, Clinton experienced significant failure. But his failure forced him to go back into God's word and to use his engineering bent and background to figure out what went wrong. First of all, just for his own growth, 
He did some research on leaders, leaders in the Bible, high-profile historical Christian leaders, and contemporary Christian leaders. He looked for patterns, common experiences, ways God worked in their lives to accomplish his purpose. And God used that failure in Clinton's life to help him train leaders through Fuller Seminary for years and years. And he's published his work in a book called The Making of a Leader, a powerful book. For the next few moments, we're going to just in a very, very summarized way, look at some of the patterns that Clinton discovered through his research. Ten common, what he calls, life processes. Five of them are what he calls ongoing processes. Five of them are what we think of in terms of negative processes. See how many of these you can see in your life. Now, in order to see these, or, or, we sometimes miss them because we ask what I think is not the right question, not the best question. The question we ask is, what's God trying to tell me? You ever ask that question? I've come to believe that that is a bit of a misleading question. It, it misleads our thinking. Be, because think about it. God doesn't have to try to tell you anything. Right? If God wants to tell us something... He'll get through to us. He, he knows how to get through, and we'll know. So what's a better question? Maybe it's, what is God doing in me? Or, even better, how might God be trying to develop me through this? And as Clinton did his research, he saw many, many ways through leaders in the past, common experiences of leaders in the past, that God is developing us. So first of all, some of those ongoing processes. He says, these are especially important for younger leaders, people new on their journey with Jesus or new in a journey of leadership with Jesus. God allows and even engineers experiences to happen in our lives so we can be ready when our real next man up time comes. One of them he calls integrity checks. Experiences that test my heart orientation that reveal whether I am really living by convictions that I claim I have. Every time we take a stand and says, this is who I want to be, God will allow tests to come to, to come to us to see whether we really are willing to live that out. Is that a bad thing? No. It's a necessary thing. Then he talks about word checks. Every single day, the experiences that come our way are designed and used by God to test our working knowledge of God's word. Our capacity and commitment to apply his word to life decisions and directions. Most of the decisions we make in life can easily be made by knowing God's word. Every difficult decision in life can only be made well by knowing God's word. Talks about divine contacts. A very interesting observation uh, Bobby Clinton made was that one of the ongoing processes God uses in our lives to allow the presence of a key person at crucial moment to help us in a stage of development. And sometimes we don't see until later. Faith challenges. Experiences God sends to test our willingness to take steps in faith to grow in our capacity to trust God. Am I willing to go against the flow? Am I willing to take a huge risk and, and trust God? And then, occasionally, he says, less common in his research was times 
as we do these other processes well, that God does give us special insight. These are rare, and it's not where we begin. In my experience, we see all of these, or as I look through the book of Joshua, or the, the, the story of Joshua, every single one of these are in there. Now let's look at just some of the ways that we view some of the circumstances in our life that we call negative. Negative preparation, a general term that he, many times God allows us to have a negative experience in our life to free us up for the next stage. Do you think God's people would have ever left God's land of, uh, uh, for God's land of promise if things had gone well in Egypt? Life crises, very special, intense Situations of pressure, health crises, financial crises, family crises. Classic times when we ask the wrong question. What is God trying to tell me? When we ask the right question, how is he trying to develop me? One of the answers is always he's trying to help you trust him in a deeper way. To know him first. Start there. Conflict and change. Clinton discovered that in most of these leaders that he discovered in the Bible, in his history of Christianity and contemporary Christianity, conflicts or internal changes help us, they help us to readjust, not to be stubborn and stick through, but to, to readjust our approach, our thinking, to be broader, not to stop. Think about Paul and Barnabas. And then another experience that he calls, don't have it here, backlash. On occasion, it happens that when we make a good call, there's backlash. Just because we make the right decision doesn't mean all the people are going to follow. Dr. Clinton discovered that this experience is common. It's not unique to you. The right thing to do is to, is to learn from it. Are there things I could have done differently? Don't crawl into a shell and say, well, obviously, I'm no good. Some of my best learning experiences, even today, comes from evaluating backlash experiences. And then finally, isolation. Isolation. Maybe you feel like you've been set aside in a desert. You know what? Great leaders for God have all had those times. They're not unique to you. What Dr. Clinton discovered was that the people who pass the test of isolation are able to use those experiences to go deeper with God. I've had those times. On some of those times, I can look back now and still love the closeness that I develop with God. So, wrap it up. Two questions. Number one, are you focusing too much on God's plan for you and not enough for you for God's plan? Can you think of ways that that might be something you're drifting into? Number two, what is God today inviting you to see as a development opportunity with him? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your servants over the years. And Father, we pray that as we enter this time of studying the book of Joshua, you will help us all to become more attuned to the next man up opportunities that you give us all the time. In the wonderful name of Joshua, Jesus, we pray. Amen.